When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to cfact.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. Are recreational fishing and boating in jeopardy of disappearing? That is the focus of today's episode. I have talked at length about a potential Commerce Department or NOAA Fisheries vessel speed rule here on the Atlantic Ocean side. Now there's a similar bill in the Gulf of Mexico being deliberated with even more punitive restrictions and draconian measures under the guise of protecting a newly distinct, newly identified distinct, rather, whale species, Rice's whales. And we have an expert today to talk about this, Captain Dylan Hubbard of Hubbard's Marina, a family-owned and operated business since 1928. Dylan and I will break down the rules, origins, who the petitioners are, if this Rice's whale is even recoverable, why the administration is scapegoating anglers and boaters, much like they have on the Atlantic side, and what the economic and recreational consequences from this rule were to be adopted are and expected to be very ruinous consequences, which are going to be all but beneficial to those who recreate on the water or near the water. Let's jump right into my conversation with Captain Dylan Hubbard. I think you'll find it to be informative, and you'll now be aware of this issue because they're trying to make it slip under the radar, and it should be on blast more. Enjoy, and let me know what you think. Captain Dylan Hubbard, welcome to District of Conservation. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate you uh, having me on your show, Gabby. Could you talk about your background and your family business before we dive into the vessel rule, please? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm Captain Dylan Hubbard from Hubbard's Marina. We're located in central West Florida. Our family business has been fishing local water since 1928. Uh, We started from rowboats with cane poles, and uh, now nearly 100 years and four family generations later, we're still hard at it. Uh, We really primarily focus on offshore federal waters, uh, prosecuting the fishery over charter boats and multi-passenger party boats. And uh, we also do a bunch of different uh, dolphin watching nature cruise and eco tours, island trips, a bunch of different kind of pleasure cruises as well. So we foray into a bunch of different things. But basically, our main source of our family's livelihood over the last nearly 100 years and four family generations has been our waterways, our, our local estuarian systems, and just the great uh, ecosystems that we have here in the state of Florida. And uh, we are blessed to be able to do what we love and have a lot of fun in the sun. So because of that, we really try to focus on uh, preserving, protecting, and conserving uh, Florida's natural resources. So I myself 
Uh, being owner-operator of the company now, I serve on the Gulf of Mexico Fishery Management Council's advisory panels. Uh, I s- uh, sit on the Refish AP, the Data Collection AP, and I chair the Outreach and Education Technical Committee for the Gulf of Mexico R- Fishery Management Council. And then also, I uh, am the president of the Florida Guides Association, and I sit on the board of the Charter Fishermen's Association. I'm the national program principal for the Southeast region for the uh, Marine Resource Education Program, and I'm the Southeast Program Principal as well for the Marine Resource Education Program. So I'm very involved and uh, try to be as highly educated as possible in fisheries management and science. And uh, as far as uh, being a fisherman and trying to be involved in the process is uh, tricky, but uh, that's the the dance we dance as part of uh, this being our our source of our livelihood, right? So it's uh it's something cool we get to do. We you love what you do. You never work a day in your life, right? So uh, when I'm not at work, working with people and and making memories and being out in the water, then uh, I'm in a, a meeting room uh, talking about what we love doing and trying to do our best to preserve, protect, and conserve it. So uh, that's a little bit about us in a nutshell. I was reading that I think USA Today and several other publications awarded your operation with several commendations like the best charter, best party boat. So you seem to know what you're doing and and the locals and, and authorities um, in terms of like gauging good things and good businesses, they recognize you guys. So they know that you entertain and you provide fun opportunities and you also have conservation at the heart of your mission. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, we were actually rated uh, by USA Today as the number one charter boat in the country and uh, top three uh, tour boats. And then uh, we just recently won uh, best fishing charter in uh, Pinellas County as well. So we're very blessed. Uh, We have a great team. Uh, We have around 80 employees and uh, we have about seven locations now. So we're pretty widespread, diverse and uh, diversified across a bunch of different styles of fishing uh, we have a radio show, a TV show, an internet show on Sunday nights. So we are uh, pretty well diverse into media as well. Um, but it's really what we do is uh, getting out there on the water and having a good time and showing people a good time and enjoying our states and our nation's natural uh, natural resources. So uh, it's to me kind of our responsibility uh, to give back and to uh, in turn try to do the best we can to uh, serve and protect those natural resources. Obviously, listeners are hearing you say this. They hear that you have been involved in the family business for nearly 100 years. You care about Florida's natural resources. You want to see it in perpetuity and continue. Yet, you are very concerned that you won't be able to provide entertainment. You won't be able to do the conservation work with this new proposed Department of Commerce and specifically the NOAA fisheries rule relating to vessel speed. Uh, For listeners who don't know, this has been a rule that we've been seeing here on the Atlantic, on the Atlantic Ocean side. Um, Not it's just it's similarly strenuous, but the Gulf of Mexico rule that I've seen, and I I think you agree, Captain Hubbard, this rule, I think, even is more strenuous and even unreasonable than what I've seen the Atlantic rule being in terms of um, the proposal there. And I think the finalization is coming out. So can you break down this rule and how it will affect your livelihood and prevent you from offering these entertainment services, from practicing conservation, being involved in stakeholder relations? Yeah, I mean, I I think the biggest concern is just the way this uh, petition came about and its timing. And it's uh, it was honestly just really poorly written. And uh, 
it was a poor execution and really mismanaged by NOAA Fisheries ultimately as well. Uh, the stakeholder groups that would be affected were never engaged in this process. Uh, the recreational boating industry was never able to be a part of the right whale workshops when they were coming into play, uh, or the Rice's Whale workshops when they were coming into play. And the, the biggest thing here is you got to remember Rice's Whales just got their own designation recently. They were listed under the Endangered Species Act in 2019 as a subspecies, a Brutus whale in the Gulf of Mexico. It's just now in the last two or three years that they started calling them Rice's whales. And uh, they still don't have critical habitat designation in the Gulf of Mexico. So NOAA Fisheries hasn't even defined, NOAA hasn't even defined an area of critical habitat. There was a recent study that just got completed uh, that was trying to define the sounds or the calls of these whales. And uh, they were actually doing research across the Gulf of Mexico. And in five locations, they found those Rice's whale calls. And uh, three of those five locations were in the western Gulf of Mexico. And this vessel slowdown zone is only in the eastern Gulf. Uh, and it's very clear that this petition was filed too early without any information, really. The study on the acoustics of the Rice's whales uh, just got completed. There was just a recent study done on the prey, uh, the preferred prey items of the Rice's whale. And then they're still working on a study right now that's trying to define and really look hard at the area in which the Rice's whale is going to be most commonly found. And no one from NOAA to Research scientists have really defined clearly an area in which Rice's whales kind of live. So how can we go about implementing such draconian measures without the right information uh, to know where these whales are? Plus, on top of that, the biggest concern is in the ESA, the uh, Endangered Species Act, uh, there was a, uh, a decree kind of put out about the different harmful effects uh, that could potentially harm a rice's whale. And vessel strikes was extremely low on that list. The number one thing that could harm rice's whales was oil and gas exploration in the Gulf of Mexico. Between 2011 and 2013, there was 46 oil spills in the Gulf of Mexico. And Deepwater Horizon oil spill alone is potentially, according to science, uh, responsible for lowering the population of rice's whales by 22%. There's only been two supposed vessel strikes ever in the Gulf of Mexico, and really only one was proven. So the entire population of Rice's whales was lowered 22%. And the recent stock assessment said, and I quote, that they might not ever, ever be able to recover from that deep water horizon spill as a population. But this Petition is only talking about vessel speed, which doesn't make any sense that they totally left out one of the biggest causes and harms to Rice's whale, which is oil and gas exploration and potentially oil and gas uh, spills. And then on top of that, the small population size in NOAA's own technical information in reference to Rice's whales, they said that the population size needs to be at least 100 individuals or at least close to 100 individuals to prevent inbreeding over the next five generations. Because if you have a smaller population than 100 individuals, potentially uh, future populations, future uh, juvenile 
uh, wouldn't be viable because they would uh, would inbreed too much amongst the individuals left. And right now, the believed population size is only 51 individuals. So the big question, which no one has an answer to yet, and that I think needs to be answered first, is, is the population size even viable for recovery? Why would we put in place such incredible, strenuous regulation on our recreational boating sector and industry without first knowing if the population can even recover. And we want them to recover. We would love to see the whales proliferate and uh, and do well in the Gulf of Mexico. But at the same time, why are we going to handicap and cripple our Gulf of Mexico's recreational boating fleet, our industry, our trade, and also really our national defense. A huge portion of this vessel slowdown area is right off the coast of Pensacola, where they do a lot of military testing in the Gulf of Mexico, and it would really cripple our national defense testing in the Gulf of Mexico. That really supports a ton of the economy and uh, the panhandle of Florida. So we're really, really taking extreme steps too early without enough information, in my opinion. I think that's a good breakdown and something I wasn't aware of. So you educated me in the process with your explanation. But I want to read for everyone watching and listening who these petitioners are, because on my podcast, Captain, I don't know if you know, I often talk about these groups I'm going to elaborate on who are behind this petition. They often go after hunting. And it seems to me that they're going to be similarly waging war on recreational fishing and boating and are doing that as well. And yes. these petitioners, there are like five or six of them. There's the Natural Resources Defense Council, Healthy Gulf. I'm not too familiar with that, but I know NRDC, Center for Biological Diversity, Defenders of Wildlife, Earth Justice, and the New England Aquarium. So New England Aquarium has no jurisdiction over the Gulf of Mexico when you come to think of it. And this was issued on uh, May 11th of 2021, so very immediately after we got a new administration. And I want to read quickly what the five stipulations of this rule would be, and then I'll have you respond um, to that. So they say through the proposed vessel slowdown zone, if it were to be enacted by NOAA Fisheries after uh, July 6th, they say that all vessel operators must avoid transiting through the vessel slowdown zone at night. Um, there must be a minimum separation distance of 500 meters from Gulf of Mexico whales if a whale is observed but cannot be confirmed as a species other than a Gulf of Mexico whale. The vessel operator must assume that the Gulf of Mexico whale it is a Gulf of Mexico whale and take appropriate action of avoidance, which I think people already do. You don't need an additional rule to, to do that. Um, visual observers, this is really kind of concerning to me too, must monitor the vessel strike avoidance area, the 500 meter zone that they're proposing. And they can either be third party observers or crew members, but crew members responsible for these duties must be provided sufficient training to distinguish aquatic species to broad taxonomic groups. Yada, yada, fourth uh, all vessels 50, 65 feet or greater must have a functioning automatic identification system on board operating at all times as required by the Coast Guard. If the vessel does not require it or is less than 65 feet in length, um, AIS is strongly encouraged. Uh, vessels that lack it must provide the vessel's name and call to NOAA Fisheries and notify NOAA Fisheries when they are transiting through the vessel slowdown area. And if a vessel operates in violation of these conditions, the operator must report the non-compliance to NOAA Fisheries within 24 hours. So, Captain, break down those uh, stipulations for me, if you can. Why it's, are those concerning to you and others? It's not concerning. It's just blatantly illogical. There's no structure in NOAA fisheries to be able to handle this. And vessels under 65 feet don't have to have AIS, and no one will. And none of the recreational fleet 
even for hire, don't have to have vessel monitoring systems or VMS. So there's no way to tell what boats are going what speed in this area. And it's impossible for NOAA fisheries to expect to be able to handle the volume of calls they would receive. Now, this area, this vessel slowdown area is 100 to 400 meters, which uh, I'm uh, not great with the imperial system. So I looked it up. It's about 320 feet to 1300 feet. So that is pretty deep off of central West Florida, where I'm located in Tampa Bay, we get out to 350 foot, 400 foot. We would enter this area and be uh, affected by it in our area, but you have to go pretty far off of central West Florida to get there. But this extends up into the Northern Gulf where it gets much deeper, much faster. And off of Pensacola, Destin, that area, this would be a huge detriment to the Western panhandle of Florida. And uh, they would really be severely impacted. And the number of vessels transiting that area would just be incredible. NOAA Fisheries doesn't have the, the, the logistics to be able to handle those phone calls. This would be a huge detriment to NOAA Fisheries in an already strenuous environment where they're underfunded and their budget is maxed out. Uh, they just, I mean, it would cripple NOAA Fisheries to be able to handle that volume of calls. So it, A, that's totally impossible. And then B, vessel safety. Uh, vessel safety is a huge concern with this. Uh, let's say they were able to handle the volume of calls, even though they're not. Let's say you go out fishing out of Pensacola and you go through this area and you're offshore. All of a sudden, the weather comes up, weather changes, and then you have to get back to shore. But you have to go through this slowdown area. And if you're going slow, the weather's going to catch up to you. It severely impacts safety at sea, which is a huge concern. And then the biggest thing is if you read the petition, the biggest problem I had was the interchangeable use of the terminology uh, between vessel and ship. If you look at a lot of the research that they were quoting, I believe it was Rose et al., uh, that paper and that research project, uh, they define a ship as a vessel that is more than, I believe, 500 tons, uh, something that drafts more than eight meters the largest recreational boat ever, the super yacht that's 150 foot long is only going to draft maybe four meters. Most of our vessels are drafting six foot or less. So these are smaller recreational vessels. And in the petition, they assert and basically uh, insinuate that a recreational vessel could strike one of these whales and then not know about it, which is asinine. Mm -hmm. I mean, the only recorded recreational uh, vessel strike that's ever occurred ever in my lifetime happened over off of the coast of Jacksonville to a, a right whale. And it was a 54 foot Viking, which is a huge sport fishing vessel. And it struck a baby. It struck a baby and it sunk. It, the vessel sunk because of the damage to the vessel and the extreme impact. So to... In the petition for them to assert that a recreational vessel, which is going to be less than 120 foot drafting less than six foot for them to assert that one of those vessels could hit one of these whales and not know about it is just absolutely incredibly heinous and unfounded and impossible. I mean, people would get seriously injured. The vessel would be catastrophically damaged and most likely sink. I mean, this is going to be something that makes national news if this occurs. So for them to say that it, 
it would be something that goes unnoticed is just uh, a problem with their definition of vessel to ship. A vessel could be any boat. A ship is a very large boat with a huge draft and a huge beam and a lot of water displacement. And yes, they could hit a whale and not know about it. So if you're going to talk about vessel slowdowns and and issues with uh, vessel strikes, you really need to be talking specifically about ships. That would be defined as drafting more than eight meters, more than 500 tons. Then that would be still a huge impact to our trade and our economy and still a huge problem, but it's not going to affect millions of recreational boaters in the Gulf of Mexico. Plus, one more thing on this whole thing that smells fishy and doesn't make any sense, um, pardon my pun about smelling fishy, but uh, the fact that this vessel slowdown area is only off the coast of Florida and the eastern Gulf, when as whereas there's already been proven to be Rice's whales in the Western Gulf. All oil and gas exploration happens off the coast of Texas, Louisiana, and some into the Eastern Gulf, but not very far. So why are we leaving out all of Texas, all of Louisiana, when we know there's Rice's whales there? Is that only to protect the oil and gas industry, which is, according to the ESA, the biggest potential uh, impact to this population? So it's very strange that the only area that's being affected by this potential proposed vessel slowdown is the eastern Gulf of Mexico, where there is no oil and gas exploration whatsoever, where the number of ships traversing this area is much lower. If you look at the port of Houston, if you look at the port, the Mississippi River coming out of the Mississippi River, ship traffic, now we're talking ships, big ship traffic is much heavier out of the port of Houston, out of Louisiana. The port of Tampa doesn't have as heavy ship traffic. And really, this whole vessel slowdown area would be more adversely affecting a recreational fishery that in reality has almost zero effect on this population. And uh, it just doesn't make any sense. And I laughed when I first saw the proposal and petition, not thinking it would get very much headway or gain very much ground. But uh, surprisingly, it has, and uh, it's definitely become more and more concerning as um, I dismissed it as illogical and asinine and heinous, and uh, there's no way anybody would logically consider this to be uh, even remotely worth uh, evaluating, but apparently <laughs> apparently it is, <laughs> and it's come this far, so uh, it is definitely becoming more and more concerning. In my opinion, I feel like they just wanted to find a scapegoat. Yes. Um, and I, I, I know... The oil and gas industry may have some involvement with imperiling the whales, but I don't see any evidence of them wanting to protect them either. But I think in yeah. the case of Florida um, specifically, because I've just noticed patterns, they've shut down uh, red snapper fisheries. They've shut down all these different type of opportunities all across the Gulf, all across the Atlantic or are attempting to do so. And to me, they're pl placing the blame on anglers and boaters. They're saying, well, they're ruining it. They're like you said, they're inventing proximity to whale strikes even though, as you mentioned, the the vessels for recreational boating and angling, they're small compared to cargo ships or to these actual ships that you exactly. said of, of big magnitude. And we know that boaters um, and even, you know, fishing 
operations do not want to entangle with whales, whether it's through netting or through crashing to them, because there are lots of safety hazards when you do. I mean, obviously, you don't want to upset your customers. You don't want to harm the whales. Like that's not your intention of being a business. Your your business, if you're sightseeing too, you want people to see whales. You want them to see marine life. Yeah. And so to, to me, I don't understand how they continue to find scapegoats in people who care deeply about these marine resources. You want your customers to see them. You want to see them flourish and coexist alongside you. You don't want them to be gone. Why is it that they're targeting anglers and boaters more so than coming to the root causes of it? I honestly have no idea. And that's one of the biggest concerns I have is before we take any steps, let's evaluate if the population can be recovered. That's a big question. And then also, let's evaluate some of these bigger, more obvious causes of mortality to these animals. And let's address some of those first. Let's rank some of these uh, threats to this population before we start making moves to make really, really widespread and honestly unfounded measures and regulations uh, and then let's involve stakeholder groups. There's so many more technologies that we could be used and implemented. The millions of recreational boaters transiting this area, how are you going to enforce that? It's an unenforceable regulation. It's all, You could then, someone could be like, well, we should strap AIS systems onto all these boats. But that's a huge burden and a huge financial impact. A much smaller burden, if this population is so small and we're so concerned about it, there's 51 individuals. I mean, we have how many great whites tagged swimming around and how many websites can you track a great white? Why not be tracking all the rice's whales in the Gulf of Mexico? It's really easy to put a satellite tag, mm -hmm. a real-time satellite tag, and they become much more cost-effective. So I feel like we're wasting a ton of taxpayer resources and a ton of Endangered Species Act resources on a population that may not be recoverable. The researchers in the most recent stock assessment said, and again, I quote, that the population might not be recoverable following that Deepwater Horizon spill. So let's figure that out first. And one of the great ways to do that and start is let's tag these animals and get real-time tracking information the, the core uh, designated area that they're working off of to create this vessel slowdown area was based on a research project in which one whale was tagged for three days. So they're potentially proposing impacts to a $214, $214 billion industry based on one whale for three days. Let's tag a few more whales, folks. Let's do a little bit more research and let's actually find out what these whales eat, find out where they're located, designate a core habitat area, and then let's move forward. And I think one of the easiest things you could do is you could work with the Marine Manufacturers Association and you could uh, tag those whales and have real-time monitoring that I can pull up in the 100 miles from the Gulf of Mexico on my nice Garmin unit. I can overlay where the weather radar is, and I can text my wife at home. It's 2023. We should be able to have a little book that comes on the radar that says, hey, you're within 500 meters of a whale. That thing's right over here. You need to go this way. 
It's really easy to do and really, really much more cost effective than these huge overburdensome regulations that they're proposing. Plus, you got to remember, this is ESA, Endangered Species Act and Marine Mammal Protection Act. The MMPA and the ESA has incredibly uh, draconian authoritative measures And if you were to be found transiting that area and let's say a storm pops up and you have to uh, all of a sudden change course or go faster and you're caught infracting that area and going uh, above and beyond the regulations, I mean, you're going to be facing some serious penalties. And I think that hasn't really been thoroughly flushed out as well. So there's just so many different things that don't add up, that don't make sense. And I think these petitioners... uh, majorly overreached with limited to no information and it's uh it shouldn't be even considered by NOAA and uh, I'm hoping that's the case uh there's many cases in which uh different stakeholder groups that are vying for power and over certain issues we might be butting heads I've never seen an issue bring us closer together than this <laughs> everybody's in agreement this is silly and uh this should not be considered and I I'm hopeful that we can all work together and and make that possible because there's a lot more research that needs to be done and don't get me wrong I want to see these whales proliferate. I want to see these whales protected. I hope the species can overcome the, the the hurdles that they face. But at the same time, let's do this in an intelligent way. My biggest thing and my biggest concern is science-based fishery management, whether it's red snapper, whether it's a gag grouper, whether it's an amberjack, a mahi-mahi, a coastal migratory pelagic, a reef fish, or a whale. Before you start implementing these really, really big time regulations that are a widespread spatial and temporal regulation, let's get some research. Let's get some science to back this up. And uh, science-based fishery management is really the future. Again, we talked before, it's 2023, there's all this technology. Let's make sure we're using some of this technology and some of this science that we have available. One of the biggest problems that we face in the Gulf of Mexico is lack of science. There's eight fishery management councils that manage our nation's fisheries and our natural resources. You have the New England Council, Mid-Atlantic Council, South Atlantic Council, Caribbean Council, Gulf of Mexico. You have West Pacific, South Pacific, North Pacific. Um, And those eight management bodies are responsible for managing our our nation's natural resources. And in the Gulf of Mexico, we share one science center, The Southeast Fishery Science Center based in Miami is responsible for all the stock assessments for the Gulf of Mexico, for South Atlantic, and for the Caribbean. Three councils share one science center, plus that science center is strapped with the uh, burden of also handling highly migratory species and sharks. So it's like they have five councils begging them for stock assessments. Why in world does the Gulf of Mexico with a huge recreational fishery have to wait five years between red snapper stock assessments? There's no reason. We should have more science centers in the Southeast region, and we should have more readily available science to allow us to have better science-based fisheries management. And then on the flip side of that, you look at somewhere like the Pacific, they have three science centers for one council. The North Pacific has multiple science centers. They have so much more resources over in the Pacific where the recreational fishery is almost non-existent. 
the commercial fishery is dominant there. And the commercial fishery has a lot of fisheries dependent resources of very data rich fisheries. So their resources aren't as heavily taxed. Whereas in the Southeast region, I mean, we have a huge economic impact from recreational fisheries, yet it's ignored when it comes to fisheries science. And plus, when you look at fisheries science and management, we have a really good management structure. We have a lot of good people that try really hard, but we have a huge uh, burden on our science feeding that management where it's super underfunded and super taxed and super stretched then across five councils, like I mentioned before. So we have a science that's trying to provide all these great managers as much as they can. We have a lot of great scientists, but they don't have enough resources and funding. Then on the flip side, even if you had tomorrow unlimited science, unlimited budget, we had a million science centers for the Gulf of Mexico, and they fund the the best science possible, really robust research projects. We get to ecosystem, uh, eco-based fishery management uh and we just we reach the gold standard of science and we have great management come from that. Look at the enforcement. The fact that we have less than 40, less than 40 NOAA officers, NOAA federal officers from from North Carolina to Brownsville, Texas and the Caribbean. So you're talking a huge expansive area. There's less than 40. Last time I looked, the number was 33. 33 federal officers from North Carolina to Brownsville, Texas. That's all of the Gulf of Mexico, all of the South Atlantic, all of the Caribbean. You're talking less than 40 people. And then you have the Coast Guard that might might enforce some fishery management stuff, but they're also worried about national defense. They have a huge mission. And a very small portion of the Coast Guard's uh, mission is enforcing fishery management stuff. And when they do pull you over, most of the time they don't know fisheries management stuff anyway. We have to kind of help along because they have so much other stuff going on. Then you look at the state. The best thing that happened recently was the Joint Enforcement Agreement, or JEA Agreement, where the feds funded the state enforcement officers to go into federal waters and enforce federal law. Well, that funding just got cut by like 75%. So now the state officers will not even go into federal waters to enforce federal law. We've been fishing for red snapper since June 1st. We haven't seen, nor heard from, nor been interdicted by any enforcement officers. Hmm. So for them to try to Past this regulation is just absolutely laughable. They can't enforce the laws they have now. We have a huge lack of science, lack of funding, lack of resources for our science, and our enforcement side of things is laughable as well. It's even worse funded and even less number of people out there on the water. So you can make all the decisions and regulations you want in a vacuum, but it's useless on the water. It's not backed by science and there's no enforcement. So what are you doing? To me, it seems like they're being guided by animal rights, preservationist environmentalism over true conservation, which requires human input, especially to better the landscape. And that's what these petitioners are often guided by in every lawsuit that they file. They're litigious and they're very frivolous in these lawsuits. I've seen this on the hunting side and a little bit on the fishing side with lead phase outs on onshore. On and so it's not surprising to see them engaged here. They're finding scapegoats, not using science, and just largely being guided by emotion. Um, and not to the benefit of the whale either. <laughs> they're displacing the, the true conservationists, and then they're also not going to help the whale. They're just going to raise money. They're exploiting the whale's plight just to say, hey, donors, we're protecting the whale. 
but there's been less than 3% of successful delisting and recovery of these whales. They're just listed in perpetuity with threatened and endangered protections to no, no enhancement of their status. Um, so to me, it seems like they're exploiting this and they really don't care. And then they're removing people from access and, and from participation who would want to see the whale like yourself uh, benefit in, in this case. So I want to ask you as we start to close out Captain Hubbard, um, what quickly, what effect will this have on conservation funding? Because boating and fishing do play a role under the Dingle Johnson Amendment. Yes. And like I mentioned before, it's a $214 or $214 billion industry across our nation, 50 million anglers in the most recent uh, research that was done. So that is a huge amount of money that gets funneled into the conservation structure through NIFWIF and all the other great funding that we have. So if you cripple the Gulf of Mexico, which is really the home the mecca of recreational boating uh, because we have the longest red snapper season. We have the largest number of recreational anglers. If you cripple a huge area in the Gulf of Mexico to recreational boating, you're going to cut funding for conservation across the nation's natural resources by 15, 20% or more. And that's a huge concern to many of us who are actually on the ground, who actually care about conservation. You hit the nail on the head with your last comment. I mean, I was in my head cheering for you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all about that charismatic megafauna, right? A whale is a great thing to point at and look, Hey, this is what we're trying to save today. Pull out your wallet and help us. And that's, what these petitioners are all about. And uh, it's very sad to see it come to that because then everybody gets turned off. Now the people who might have helped, who might have cared more, are turned off by this whole process. And it's really frustrating to see uh, the perversion of the process for profit. And that's what we're seeing in this petition. How can those outside of the Gulf of Mexico weigh in, help you guys? Because Seeing how the rulemaking process is going, this could be implemented within three months, six months, within a year. Um, the only thing that I could see stopping this potentially would be lawsuits, <laughs> just given how rulemaking is going. So how can people help you guys, even if they're not directly impacted? Because like I said, the Atlantic Ocean similarly has a vessel rule, six months prohibition, um, lower speed limits. Uh, but we still, I think people on the East Coast and even the Pacific and elsewhere, Great Lakes would also be very concerned. So where would people be best uh directed to to help you guys? Well, that's a big question that I have in, uh, in and of myself, right? Is the comment period ends today. So I'm, I'm hoping and praying that the NOAA will see the brighter side of things and, and not move forward with rulemaking, uh, because that is an option, right? Uh, so very, very potentially, and in my opinion, likely, and, and hopefully they don't move forward with rulemaking. But if they do decide to make for, move forward with rulemaking, there will be another comment period open on the proposed rule. And that will be a time, uh, once it's listed in the Federal Register, that we will really need to lobby and uh, get everybody possible to uh, to make comments. Um, because then we can hopefully kind of maneuver this rule and uh, maybe mold it a little bit more realistically, because in this case, the way the petition states uh, is just totally illogical and doesn't make any sense. So as the rulemaking moves forward, maybe it can be changed to be uh, inclusive of some of those scientific uh, approaches to hopefully helping to offset mortality on this subspecies. Well said. Thank you, Captain Dylan Hubbard, for coming on the podcast.
Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Make sure you're connected to us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And also on your preferred player, we recommend Apple Podcasts, where you can leave us reviews if you really like the content. Share the podcast with friends who may be interested in learning more about what's trending in conservation and the related industries that entangle with it and sometimes work against it as well. Thanks for listening to the show and stay tuned for the next episode.